This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. This is the second part of our two-part, <laughs> probably, um, story about QAnon and specifically historical precedent. You call it from Ted Gunderson to QAnon or from the Finders to QAnon. At any rate, we're going to be talking about Ted Gunderson and the Finders and the Satanic Panic. And if you haven't heard previous episode, episode 24, my presentation on the finders and all the above topics, make sure you check it out because this is probably going to lose you a little bit if you haven't heard that stuff and you're unfamiliar with the material. In this episode, I speak to Lucian Greaves, co-founder of the Satanic Temple, and I speak to Joseph Matheny, a renaissance man of sorts, game designer and inventor of Ong's Hat. Ong's Hat, as you uh, may be aware, is a uh, an experiment, a transmedia experiment, a alternate reality game, an urban legend, probably similar to what's happening with QAnon, except this was not meant to be a cult or to ruin people's lives. Although, to hear Joseph tell it, which you will, it quickly began to develop a a darker aspect, which I think more than anything maybe just says as a society we're not allowed to have alternate reality games. But at any, any rate, it was great to talk to him. And then uh, Ed Opperman, digital forensic specialist, conspiracy theory podcaster with his podcast, The Opperman Report. Now, Ed and I don't agree on everything. We agree on a lot, I think. He's a good left-wing guy and, you know, pretty, just a solid dude. But he, uh... He thinks that uh, McMartin Preschool really was this satanic sex cult, and he uh, believes all the satanic panic stuff. I tried to warn him. I told him I was going to have him on the same episode with Lucian Greaves, and he didn't seem to mind. But when I announced recently that I was speaking at a uh, satanic temple-hosted conference, he flipped out. Well, not, not really flipped out. He just, you know, he just... Uh, sent me a brief message on uh, Twitter and uh, blocked me on Twitter. So keep in mind that this episode is not endorsed by Ed Opperman at all. We're just producing, introducing the uh, information for your 
for your edification. So, without further ado, let's talk to Ed Opperman. I am just really interested. I don't know anything about Ted. I know every time I turn around, I see him. You know, he seems to be involved in everything. And I know you've talked to him. So I was just hoping you could kind of tell me your history with with Ted Gunderson. First met Ted, I was working for this company called Action Research. And I was selling them uh, telephone company information. And uh, so what happened was there was trouble at the company. The company was going out of business. So, um, uh, Ted, somehow me and a bunch of guys wound up with the, with the mailing list and the phone numbers of all the clients over there. And one of the names is Ted Gunderson. So I called him up, cold call. I says, hey, Ted, I know you use this company for a source. Uh, you know, I can sell you the same stuff cheaper than SLT. He only used me for that a few times. Uh, but we did have some long conversations early on. And, uh, and it was interesting, too, because for some reason he thought that I had the ability to dub videotapes or dub audio tapes. I don't know what gave him this impression, but <laughs> but he became convinced of this early on. And then over the years, whenever I would talk to him, he would always say, well, you know, you, you, you never did those tapes for me. You never, you never did the tape. And I'd say, oh, you know, Ted, you don't understand. And I said, I don't do that, you know. But So that was that. What, what year did you um, first call him? Okay, it had to be... Uh, after the internet, so you feel about 96, 97, around that time, okay? Because the internet was already in existence, and I, I got involved in the internet around 97, I think it was. Now, oh, no, no, uh, uh, I guess it was 96, 97. I, I can't be exact. Um, oh, one thing, too, early on in the phone calls, uh, he, was, he would talk, brag about how he was um, responsible for putting down the black power movement. It was a comment, he, right, because he was COINTELPRO in Los Angeles, okay? Right. Everybody forgets that. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Like, you know, Mr. You know, the government, one, you know, new world orders coming and we got to defend ourselves from the government. But talk about exactly like what he's was preaching against the, you know, the Cointel Pro. Yeah. And, you know, and people was, well, he's, you know, he's Cointel. He's Ted Gunderson was Cointel Pro. <laughs> you know, for an absolute 100% fact. Uh huh. Okay, my next brush up with Ted is, okay, um, I had become fascinated with McMartin Preschool, and I was following it on uh, Alt Usenet, right? And one of the frequent writers on it was Alex Constantine. And um, I, you know, I, I would read this every day and follow up in the Bible that was going on in action. So uh, about a year or two later, I was posting something on a face, uh, an AOL group, and Jackie Magooley, the mother of one of the McMartin kids, saw me writing, and she says, hey, give me a call. I want to talk to you. So I called her up, and she asked me to call her because she thought I was Alex Constantine typing under a fake name. So she wanted to hear my voice. And she had no love for Ted at that time, okay? Um, and uh, what do you call it? Uh, we were talking, and at one point she says to me, yeah, he talks to Michael Aquino on his cell phone every day. Yeah, and I said, well, why would he be talking to Michael Aquino every day? And she goes, I don't know, to make himself feel important. Okay. 
And at the time, I accepted that because I looked up to Ted Gunderson. See, the other guys were kind of afraid to call him when we all had his number. I was the only one, like, ballsy enough to call the great Ted Gunderson, you know, and get him on the phone and talk to him. So I was impressed with his work. You know, the guy was a known name, you know. Um, yeah. So so who is this woman? I'm sorry. You said her oh, name. Okay. A lot of people pronounce it differently. I've always assumed it was Jackie Magali. Uh, she spells Jackie with a Q. And, and then it's like either Magali or Maguli. And she was the mother of one of the McMartin preschool victims. And she be, when got into a romantic relationship, with, I believe, with Ted Gunderson. And, but he was staying at her house for sure. There's no doubt about that down there in Manhattan Beach. And um, she's the one who paid for the, for the uh, underground, uh, what's that called, the ar- archaeological survey thing. She paid for it. I guess I'm wondering, like, why he chose to go into, like, you know, become a private investigator and how he kind of got involved in this underworld of, you know, this alternative conspiracy theory, whatever you want to call it. Right. That's very interesting, too. His first case as a private investigator after leaving the F- or after allegedly leaving the FBI, because later on, I'll tell you, I don't think he ever did. Um, his first case was to work for um, Dr. Uh, uh, McDonald. Jeff, right, Jeff McDonald, Jeffrey McDonald. Uh, to go work for him. And his main thing in that was he was, by the way, that, that case took place at Fort Bragg in, in a, right? Uh, right. And you know who was stationed there at that time? Michael Aquino. Okay. And here's Gunderson. Allegedly, the story goes that, because I talked to Jeff McDonald's current wife, you know, who married him while he's in prison. I had her on the show twice. Uh, and I, I tried to get through to her about Gunderson and all... Man, and, and I was supposed to have a conversation with McDonald and tell him everything I know about Gunderson. Never went off. Never went off. We had a whole big uh, – she got upset about some people were saying in my chat room, and that was it. Um, so what happened was uh, he got brought in by Jeff McDonald's friends said, hey, we need to hire a really big hotshot PI. Let's hire this guy. How they know about him, I don't know. But his role in that case, because as you know, in that case, there was a, a cult involved in that case. And his role was, I forget the woman's name, um, Blakely, the woman in the floppy hat, who confessed to being part of the murder. And he's the one who videotaped a, a confession with her and a statement. And But then the, the, it fell apart. She fell apart as a witness. But quote, unquote, you know, people use this expression, handler, all the time out here, like they're all experts on this kind of stuff. But quote, unquote, he was exactly her handler from start to finish. No way to deny that. So that was uh, that's how Gunderson got into PI work. And by the way, too, I don't know. Uh, he didn't have a great reputation among other PIs. Uh, you know, I, I, I've mentioned this before in the year, and people get mad at me. But there's this thing called like these lonely old widows, you know, who like to hire private investigators, you know, and they got some crazy case on their head. They think they have a lawsuit or they think something's happening, and it's very tempting to take those cases, you know, because they are offering you money, you know, and there's really not a lot of work involved. They could just come in the car and drive around with you, you know, and take their money. And he had a reputation for for going for that and oh, doing really? and doing. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just kind of the trajectory of like, you know, him starting, you know, with like the Jeffrey McDonald case, which is you know, a legit you know, like, important case, and then, you know, like, by the end of his life, you know, talking about the New World Order and, you know, selling, like, devices so your brain wouldn't, you know, to, like, keep you from having your, you know, like, targeted individual stuff, you know? It's like, 
he doesn't see like he definitely seems like a scammy character. Um, like, and it sounds like he had that rep kind of as in the the uh, PI world too. Would you characterize yeah. him like that? Um, Do you think that's fair? You know what? I don't know. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't go that far and say that because um, you know you, the thing is too is a lot of times too is that the clients out there are crazy, you know, and they're saying things about you, and, and they're the ones that are crazy and scammy and sleazy. And you just, you get mixed up with them. He, he, but he was a type that he seemed to get mixed up with a lot of people, and a lot of couch surfing seemed to have gone on in his life, which uh, I don't know how you could run a, a, a real serious business, you know, like that. Um, there's some great stories, uh, you know, because he was involved with Frank, Franklin cover-up too, you know. Uh, he was in there, and again, too, you know, it seemed to be like a lot of people came to him, a lot of stories, but no convictions, you know? Right, and then there's these really funny stories, man, if you could find them. Uh, I interviewed um, Millar, Doug Millar, okay, who was very good friends with Ted Gunnison. And I had my opinion about Gunnison, he had his own opinion. But he starts telling all these stories about uh, Stu Webb and Ted Gunnison. And Stu Webb was living at... Uh, was living at uh, Ted Gunnison's condo in Las Vegas. And something happened. There was some kind of beef going on there. And they pushed him out of the apartment in his underwear. <laughs> in his boxer shorts, right? But as Doug Millard describes it, but he's such a skinny, wiry guy. He climbed up the, the terrace <laughs> or the fire escape in his underwear and went in there and stole all these boxes of material that Gunderson with cases and stuff that oh, he was wow. working at. Yeah, I know. It's the craziest stuff. There's even some story, too, about Gunderson being involved in selling Stinger missiles, I think, to Iran or something like that. What? Just like, yeah. Oh, and man, you got to find that show. It's hysterical. Just one thing after another with these people. Uh, my my next uh, big event with Gunderson was um, I um, you know Art Bell right yeah Bell had a lawsuit against Gunderson because Gunderson went on the radio in Las Vegas and his guest said he made a very ugly disparaging remark about Bell that I don't believe okay I don't believe it to be true and Gunderson said oh yeah we have that information too I know all about that Agree- agreeing with him okay. And uh, so Bell sued him too, okay? So I knew Gunnison, and I knew that Bell and Gunnison were the same guy. They were the same kind of person, both right-wing nuts, you know, uh, drank too much, you know, whatever. And I, I knew they would be great friends, and I, I called up Gunnison, and I said, hey, man, you know, I just helped out, you know, Bell sell this lawsuit. I, I can help you settle this. I'm sure I can if you two, you know, if I got you two on a phone call. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not worried about that because, uh, you know, my insurance company's taking care of that, and, you know, we're going to fight the case. You know, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that at all. Okay, so then his insurance company settles and pays Bell, right? He said he was covered under his errors and omissions insurance. This is exactly exactly what he said to me, right? Your private investigators, errors and omissions insurance, right? And at the time, I said, okay, that makes sense because I, I have errors and omissions insurance. When you're PI, you make a mistake on a case, you leave something out of a report, and then oh, well, you're responsible, you get sued. Okay, flash forward. And then I called him back after the case, was, and I said, you know, and it was, oh, yeah, I never, I'm so mad. I never should have settled. The insurance company uh, settled it. I never, I would afford it in court. And, um, um, you know, all that stuff. Okay. So just let it drop. Now, I don't think I had any contact with him after that until he died. I can't think of anything. Um, but I had this client in California. This woman comes to me 
And uh, she had all these, I had to run a whole bunch of things for her. And she says to me, this woman has no reason to lie to me. She's not crazy, nothing. And she says, you know, I even went down to the FBI headquarters. No, she says, I even talked to Ted Gunnison about this. And I says, oh, yeah, and when did you meet Ted? She goes, I saw him you know, at, the, at the FBI headquarters in Los Angeles. And I says, what do you mean? I says, what was he doing there? She goes, he was working there. He was, he was there. He was working. And I says, you got to be kidding me. He's supposed to be retired. What are you talking about? So, oh, no, I, he was there working. Now, other people have said to me that, hey, he could have been there working as a consultant on something or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's not the impression I got. But yeah. What now, year would that have been? Uh, I could go back and find out if I had to. But like 90s okay. or 2000s? No, no, that, no, that was a, um, after, way after. Uh, it was, it might have been even after I had a radio show. Okay. It probably was. So he would have been it, like retired 25 years. That right. Point, allegedly retired. Right. Wow. Okay, I uh, hope you uh, enjoy our little conversation there, uh, me and Ed. Next up, let's hear from Lucian Greaves of the Satanic Temple, who has his own take on Gunderson. It's actually m- not much of a different take, but his own experience with the dude. I, I don't know if you read my piece about Ted Gunderson, but when I started reading this material, uh, this was, you know, I, I didn't take a lot of it seriously, but I still gave the benefit of the doubt. Like, oh, they, they've taken like these small elements of truth and really conflated them into something, you know, grotesque. So to that end, like when they kept saying, but there were tunnels found under McMartin, I actually assumed there were tunnels under McMartin, you know, because a lot of old buildings did have passageways under them or whatever else. And uh, I at first didn't realize how small and residential the McMartin property was. So for a while, I was just taking it for granted. Sure, they they found some they found some shit under the property of uh, of McMartin, but that doesn't mean that they were trafficking children or you know slaughtering giraffes and other things that they claim that they were doing under there just claim that there was you know some territory underground for whatever reason and i come to find there there weren't even tunnels under mcmartin that uh ted gunderson himself had dug them up and when i started looking through ted gunderson's speeches and and other testimony related to finding these tunnels under mcmartin it became really clear that he had just simply dug these up. And it was amazing to hear him speak rather candidly about the series of events uh, without realizing how discrediting they were. He talked about trying to uh, get Gary Stickle, who was the uh, archaeologist from UCLA, who eventually signed off and said, yes, there were tunnels under McMartin. But then you hear Ted talking about it, and he's saying he had access to this property for some uh for some month or, or more uh, before it was going to be torn down and they were going to put condos there or whatever. And uh, 
Ted was set about, even, you know, by his own telling of this, he set about trying to convince this archaeologist that tunnels were under there. And he was digging up what he deemed to be loose dirt of pre-existing tunnels that had been filled in. And you have to keep in mind that in these tunnels, they were supposed to be uh, taking kids through this underground network. They were supposed to be doing sacrifices, all this type of thing. And yet the tunnels Ted claimed to have dug up were like 40 inches wide and 35 inches high, something like that. Almost, you know, almost prohibitive for crawling through, you know, for any adult or, or anything like that. But they claimed that uh, given the debris they found that obviously there were underground tunnels there and subsequent investigators, you know, looked at this debris they were talking about and looked at the, the, the makeup of what they were saying these tunnels were. And uh, they rather quickly concluded that dating that debris, you know, it was clearly trash, uh, was it, the, the, what they had found were actually trash pits. The, this property pre-existed trash pickup as, as a public service. And it was common practice for people to bury their trash in a pit, fill up that pit, dig up another pit, you know, and, and throw in trash. And it was all dated to that, that like time frame and everything else. And they, you know, it's clearly there just weren't tunnels under McMartin. So it's, it's amazing to this day to see that touted as like the be all end all evidence, you know, everybody disregarded Big Martin, but too late did they find that there actually were tunnels underground. And now you have the same kind of narrative with Pizzagate where they're saying, you know, there's tunnels under this Comet ping pong restaurant in DC when there aren't. And uh, if you dig deep enough, you will see people saying like, you know, this is, this is a common thread now, you know, like now, now we can see that there's this, this cover up of this pedophilic network that runs these underground tunnels and uh, commits these crimes. And the legend of McMartin proves it all. Did you, you've spoken to him, right? You've spoken to Ted. Yeah, I spoke to him a couple times and this was, uh, this was, well, back in the day, I think we're talking more around 2004, somewhere around there. And uh, the uh, uh, the interest I had at the time was in the Process Church of the Final Judgment, um, which was this uh, then more obscure cult from the 60s and 70s that, that disbanded. And there wasn't actually a whole lot of material about them then but there was a lot of folklore about how you know they hadn't disbanded they were really the ones responsible for the satanic crimes that people were talking about during the satanic panic they became part of the satanic panic folklore and i was looking to find out more about what they really were and i read a book by a horrific hack by the name of maury <laughs> terry mm-hmm. um, who considered himself a journalist and wrote this uh, wrote this terrible, you know, poorly researched, uh, very unconvincing book that the Son of Sam murders were actually done at the behest of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, this this old cult. And the process, in reality, was more of this uh, hippie-era 
religious group that uh, splintered off originally from Scientology out of London, and then they developed their own theology about uh, balance, reconciliation, the, the reconciliation of Christ and Satan, and they venerated both Christ and Satan equally as, as kind of equal opposites. And uh, they had a chapter network in the United States, and they, they were pretty big for a while. But they had this very kind of uh, satanic imagery surrounding them. You know, they wore black robes and had their altars and this their weird symbols and everything else. So they, they were kind of uh, ripe, uh, raw artistic material for the conspiracists to really say that there was, there was something, something going on there. So anyways, Maury Terry, uh, without any real convincing evidence, decided that the process had mind-controlled... Uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, and caused him to go around slaying people with a 44 caliber gun to fulfill some kind of ritual function. Um, it, it was kind of laughable theory as it was, but somewhere in the uh, credits of his book, he listed uh, uh, former FBI man, Ted Gunderson. So I, I know that I had called the FBI to confirm if I could that Gunderson had worked for them at all. Um, and at that time, since Gunderson was alive, they said that the, all they could say, do was confirm employment. You know, they said he worked from this year to this year. And that, I think that was about all they could say about it. Um, you know, living person's records. So it, it, I, I don't even think they could confirm in what capacity he worked. Oddly enough, you'd think that would be public record. So, it left me to wonder, and maybe it was, maybe I was just dealing with an asshole, but, um, it, you know, but then, you know, talking to Ted or seeing that, you know, the ludicrous things he'd say, I began thinking, all right, I feel like this guy was probably, you know, probably the night cleaner or, you know, an admin or something like that. You know, this guy didn't, didn't have the critical thinking skills I thought to be a, an actual federal agent. But in any case, I called him up because Maury Terry wouldn't talk to me. Um, and this is, this is before anybody knew anything about me anyway. So nobody had any reason to think I was going to be, uh, terribly critical. But at that time, uh, I managed to just find a number for Ted Gunderson online. Um, and I think people back at that time were less careful too about their information availability, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, people weren't, uh, weren't as typically looking up people's, uh, numbers and stuff like that on online. But I, so I, I looked him up and I, I gave a call to, I, I know there were several numbers, but I called one. He actually happened to be there and I talked with him a little bit and I asked him about what, in what way did he help Maury Terry, research his book and, and, you know, what made him think the process had anything to do with the son of Sam murders and all of that. And he claimed that he had gone with Maury Terry to a uh, site of where one of the son of Sam slayings had taken place or to one of the victim's houses or something like that. And said that uh, there was a Bible open to a particular passage that said something actually quite typical of the Bible about uh, taking some kind of blood vengeance or something like that. And this was, this was a clue, you know, 
behind by Satanists or whatever that uh, this was, you know, that this whole theory was true. And it was such an obscure uh, kind of connection to draw. And it was such a far reach, you know, that I began to feel that Ted uh, was not the simply the con man that I had taken him for because I had seen some of the lectures he had done and that kind of thing where he was going around talking with Bryce Taylor, who was claiming that she had been a mind controlled sex slave to uh, Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, Elvis Presley, just a whole laundry list of, of celebrities from her day. And it seemed to me that Ted was doing a talking circuit, making money off of this whole thing, uh, sitting there while people were making ludicrous claims and probably collecting a paycheck from it. I didn't realize then how much, how little money is to be made in this type of thing. And I, uh, but when Ted made the claim that the Bible being opened to that page uh, indicated that all of this was true, it also made me think, well, you know, if the guy was just a con man, I think he would make up something better than this, you know, but I, I do think he was a con man too, but I, I, but I also feel like he was also like a self deluded con man and that he actually, you know, was paranoid and deluded and saw these kinds of connections and didn't realize that other people, rational people weren't convinced by them. Anyways, I, I talked with him on the phone a little while and he was, uh, uh, I was, you know, even then I was really, disinclined to to believe him and, and not not very uh uh well disposed towards uh the kind of bullshit i was seeing him put out and it kind of seemed like he had developed a behavioral defense mechanism towards that and that he was just unfailingly polite and uh and said very complimentary things to me you know regarding even the way I posed questions, asked me a bit about myself, you know, and said like, I was, I was, I really showed promise as a, as an upstanding young man and that kind of thing, uh, which led me to believe like he was accustomed to being under attack. And this was a way he kind of mitigated that, you know? And uh, I called him, you know, a few times with questions related to conspiracy theories he was involved in um, before he died. And it was really difficult to go hard on, on Ted Gunderson. I got to say, you know, like you call him and he would be the nicest old man you had ever spoken to. Um, but even knowing that, you know, uh, still like, I can't help but hate him when I, when I see the, the things he did, the damage he did and how conflicting that uh, image of himself is that he put forward to me with even his own description of how he very obviously um, tried to coerce people into false testimony, the way he tried to beat people into, uh, into agreeing with his deranged conspiracy theories. Uh, Lucian Greaves with his story about how he came to speak with Ted Gunderson. Uh, it occurs to me as I as I record this that I 
I have spoken to one of Gunderson's colleagues at the FBI. I'm wondering if I should tack this on to the end of this episode or burden y'all with part three. I don't know. I'll think about that for a minute. Yeah, in the meantime, uh, Joseph Matheny. At home, there are 17 year old boys and their idea fun. It's being in a game called the Disciples High on Crack, toting a machine gun. I started recording, by the way, so I'm not going to name this guy. But, um, you know, one popular author in that world, um, I was talking to him once before he decided that I was working for the pedophocracy and cut me off, But <laughs> which, which I knew was going to happen sooner or later. But, um, you know, we were talking and he's, you know, he's convinced that he was either ritually abused or had an alien abduction encounter, even though he doesn't really remember it. And I asked him, you know, I'm like, this was kind of like a rare instance of like quality self-reflection. I was like, are you sure you're not just inventing this for some reason, you know? And um, basically saying, are you sure you're not nuts? And he was like, well, if this didn't happen to me, then that means I would have wanted it to happen. I would, I want it to happen to me, and that's even crazier. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like no, it's not actually because I've been up close and personal with some of these people, and um, I've literally seen them read something in a book and tell me the next day that that happened to them. Wow. Um, psychologists call this projection. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as what we usually know as projection. Right. Uh, but it's a form of projection, and I've seen it. I've literally seen it firsthand where somebody read a book that I gave them, and then they came back and said, thanks for turning me on this because, you know, I, this happened to me. And I'm like, oh, oh shit, I enabled somebody. I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah, I, I was speaking to somebody on a podcast, and um, he's a, like a high school teacher, and he was doing – basically like a media literacy course for high school students. And one of the things which sounds great is like discussing conspiracy theories and how you can kind of tell and, you know, just how to think critically about what you see on the internet. And he had to stop teaching it because like the kids would be introduced to these examples and they would start to believe them, (laughs) which is, yeah. What was, what was that, uh, that experiment, um, in fascism? Mm. that the, the class did, and then <laughs> next thing oh, you yeah. know, yeah, it was like the Stanford prison experiment. It's like all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that's what happened with with uh, a lot of these alt right people too. Because like, huh. I knew a lot of these. Like in 2014, I started to see people that I've known online since the 90s. Right, mm-hmm. I, I've been online a long time. I, I was a bulletin board guy in the late 80s, so that tells you how long I've been online. Nice. And so I watched these people morph. And in 2014, I started hearing people that I knew as longtime leftists, like people that even ran like uh, socialist blogs and things like that. Mm -hmm. In 2014, they're telling me, oh, I've gone neo-reactionary. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That is scary. Yeah. Uh, It was just, and and they were all chanters. Yeah. So I think there was a bit of immersion that went on with that, and, mm-hmm. and people started doing it, air quotes, ironically, and then I think they absorbed it. I really, I mean, I know that sounds like simplistic 
explanation, but I really do think it's that simple sometimes. It's like when you're immersed in that stuff, you start like kind of unconsciously acting it out, I think. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there seems to be something to that. You know, what really caught my interest was that QAnon and liking it to LARPing. And um, I really hadn't thought about, I had really hadn't given much thought to what if all these people aren't un, aren't gullible QAnon believers, but what if, you know, there's like a serious current of people who are basically like, Stirring the shit. <laughs> no, yeah. no, that 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 is what's happening. Yeah, and I would love to hear about that. I think I think it's a thin margin of people at the top that are doing this, you know, cynically. Mm-hmm. So here's let me just kind of give you a little background. So basically, uh, I started I started constructing what later became known as an ARG. Uh, I call it the living book process. This tells you how long ago I started doing this, like in the in the early nineties. Um, and so I had this idea, I had a lot of different interests and I wanted to build some sort of concept art that incorporated all these different intersectional interests I had, you know, cause I was, I was into like, um, art installation art, like the kind of art where you walk into a room and the room is the installation and that's the art. Uh, so immersive theater, I was into transgressive theater the kind of theater that like came off the stage and I was into guerrilla theater on the streets. Um, I was into obviously uh, using the new medium of the network computer as a new medium and a way to tell stories across mediums. So an art installation traditionally is a room or a space in a gallery or, you know, you can even do it outdoors if you're, you know, more of a guerrilla artist, but it's basically stuck in space and time somewhere. Whereas with the internet, you could build this concept and it would be, it would transcend borders and it would live timelessly. So there would be like, anybody could come across it at any given time. And because of the interactivity from the internet, you could make it constantly morphing in shape so that it was always this thing that was in evolution all the time. And, and essentially what I was talking about doing was building what's called an infinite game, which is, you know, the opposite of a zero sum game which means that the infinite game is played for the sheer joy of playing and there is no beginning, middle, and end. Because since there is no goal, such as like I get all the points, when, when I hit 100 points I win, at the end of the game whoever has the most marbles, like all these different games are zero-sum games. An infinite game is just something you just keep playing for the joy of playing it. And that's what I was trying to build. So I was taking all my interests and kind of, pushing them together and, and included in that is interactive LARP type games that I'd become interested in that were play by mail at that time. So you would send things back and forth and, you know, you could set up meetings in real space and time and like all these different things. So I was kind of trying to build something like that, but it was, it was, you know, an interactive storyline. And then around 2001, I decided that it just became too much to manage and so, um, you know, 9-11 happened, which, you know, didn't, didn't bode well for doing conspiracy-themed things. Like, it really didn't. I mean, that's, when, that's kind of when conspiracy theory, I think, went from left to right. Yes. And that's when I decided to stop doing what I was doing um, 
because, you know, like even the forum that we had got ugly. Um, it started to get raided by all these right wing like conspiracy nuts that were screaming all kinds of crazy shit. And, um, and then I noticed around 2000 and I want to say like 2003 and four, something happened. And there was, what would happen was like, there would be these websites that would pop up or blogs and they would basically just be shit talking, shit posting about all kinds of people, including like, you know, famous people, but then not so famous people that they didn't like. And when you asked them what they were doing, they would say that it was an ARG. And I was like, no, that's not an ARG. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's just you being a troll and like being a really nasty, ugly person. Right. Um, but that's when I think that's when the, the idea of an ARG started to get co-opted by the kind of the, the far right conspiracy nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you started to see things like people started to become – you know, more and more and more identifiable as these people because they were, they were truthers. They were none of them truthers usually. Mm-hmm. They were usually uh, Alex Jones aficionados. Um, they, they were followers of people like David Icke, David Wilcox, you know, like all these kind of nutty right-wing, right-leaning people that won't just come out and say that, that they're, you know, they're racist or, um, you know, xenophobic and, all kinds of different things I could name, but but they are all these things. But they don't just want to come out and say it because they know that's bad PR. Mm-hmm. Yet they apply it a lot in what they say and do. And that's when you started to see, like the the concept of ARG kind of get co opted by this group of people, which you know eventually became things like GamerGate, PizzaGate, and then now we have QAnon. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like you tapped into something really ugly about human nature that you had absolutely no intention to do so. Well, I come from that area of the Internet, which was, I I will admit now, we were very naive. Uh, You know, I was a developer. I worked in Silicon Valley. I had all these ideals. Um, I really thought that, like, we could have an Internet that would, that would be like the great library of Alexandra and we could all be anonymous because, you know, that, that would protect our privacy. And, you know, I thought that like giving, given the opportunity to do the right thing, that humanity would choose to do the right thing. And I was wrong in all those aspects, unfortunately, but, but we did believe that. I mean, we really did believe that like in the, in the early nineties, that was something we really believed. Now, Yes, that may, looking back now in hindsight again, I can say that made us naive, naive and you know, but but we really did think that we're doing this great thing. It's it's a great leveler. It's going to level the playing field. Anybody with a computer can be a publisher. You know what I mean? Everybody gets a voice. Nobody's judged on their looks, their skin color. You know, like we really believed all that. We really did. So you know, you can imagine what a letdown it was for me when, <laughs> when the experiment uh. crashed and burned, but. You know, yeah. if there's one thing you can count on, it's for people to let you down. <laughs> but, um, you know, was there a point where QAnon started popping up in your awareness and you were kind of like, it was like deja vu all over again? Or Yeah, like one thing that popped up was, um, I mean, I'd heard of the Q thing. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how I heard about it, but some of the people that made the, uh, the forum experiment a failure because they just like they're trolls. There's no other word for it. Um, you know, they, they were disruptive. They wouldn't let anybody else have a, a, a thought or a, t- or a, 
continue a thread and, and have any thoughts that were different than theirs. They were pretty bullish on the, on the forums. And some of those people, some of those personalities, I, I noticed like kind of gravitated out to the um, climate change denier forums and then, you know, the, the Pizzagate forums and then the QAnon forums. Because mm-hmm. I, I kind of still keep an eye on some of those people because I'm not quite sure if they ever think they're going to come back. Yeah. Um, so I have to kind of keep an eye because it got really hairy for a while. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I even had, I've had to draw a gun on several people several times on my property and walk them off. Wow. And, and like, when when did that – how long was Ong's hat out there before people started – before you started physically like having people come up and well it was out there for i mean i started seeding it around 91 mm-hmm. i'll say or maybe even 89 i started seeding it around that around that period um but then it, you know it got really serious around 98 okay um that's when i put the cd rom together and started to try to draw a community together around it and like say let's all talk about this and see if we because one of the things I noticed is when you get a bunch of people together talking about something, that you start to experience synchronicities. Yeah. Um, and so when you have a lot of people talking to each other, there, there's bound to be these things that, that either are low grade or high grade synchronicities that come up. And mm-hmm. I won't get into like you know Rupert Sheldrake's theories or any of that. Sure. <laughs> like why that happens, I don't know. It happens. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of theories of my own why it happens, but this, you know it's for another day. Um, but it does happen, and it's a phenomenon that makes the experience of what we were doing um, seem more unique and more authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of people, what I found out was <laughs> it takes them over the edge. <laughs> yeah. So around 99, 2000, that's when we started to see the believers show up. Mm. And that's when the fun started to go out of the project, because then we had true believers. And this was never about true believers. Right. This right. was about let's all come together and play this game where, you know, we suspend disbelief together on this one thing for a while and let's see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, it really sounds like you were kind of plumbing, plumbing, you know, you're kind of exploring the fertile ground where theater and games and like ceremonial magic, perhaps even <laughs> kind of. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Which, um, you know, that's powerful stuff to just kind of throw out into the, wider world although it sounds like you thought that you know people for the most part could handle that i thought they could you know in theater and games and ceremonial ceremonial magic are actually one and the same Mm. um there are different aspects of the same principle that if you go far enough back in time you see that you know theater and magic and games were kind of the same thing and they were all considered sacred Mm -hmm. um and so that's what I was actually trying to do was I was trying to take that, that dispersion and pull it back together and say, let's have a, let's have a sacred game. Let's all know we're playing it, but let's not talk about the fact that we're playing it because, you know, suspension of disbelief. Um, and let's do, let's do this theatrically. Let's all do this great thing together. And, uh, yeah, I did pull those things together. I mean, I intentionally pulled those things together mm-hmm. and, what I discovered was um, I'm not sure if it's the fact that people are on the internet. And again, remember this is early days of the internet. So, you know, looking back on it, would I do it again like that now? No, Mm -hmm. but did I know not to do it that way then? No. 
um, I thought that, you know, like we could do this great thing in this new space. It hadn't occurred to me and a lot of other people yet that this disconnected space that we were all in um, lent itself through this even virtual cloud of anonymity that was around that people's shadows would come out and play. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, just to use a union term, um, because they weren't in the room with you. And in a lot of ways, you were not real to them. You weren't, you weren't, I mean, I've had this conversation with people that were doing dastardly shit to me. Like some of the, like one of the guys that were trying to, was trying to break into my house and I had to walk him off the property with a gun. He really thought that what he was doing was part of the game and it was okay. Oh, wow. That I would be cool with it. <laughs> that's, that's scary. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look at look at how people act around celebrities, like celebrity mm-hmm. stalkers. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like look at people like uh, John Mark David Chapman, and you know, like look at look like the belief system that he built up around himself and John Lennon and and Holden Caulfield. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. he had a he had a, a universe built up around that. Mm-hmm. And and I've met other people that do the same thing with a lot of this conspiracy stuff. That unfortunately is being run by a couple of, I mean, in some cases there really are some completely nutty people at the top that really believe what they're saying and they're, they're, they're doing it. But I think for the most part, what I found is that there's very cynical, manipulative people at the top. Mm-hmm. Of your kids. So uh, tell me about that. Like what have you found looking into this stuff? I don't want to name names because then this, then, then the bullshit's going to start for me again. Sure. Um, so I will not name names. But if I did, you would you would recognize them. <laughs> um, so basically, in the early days when I was doing the Young's Hat thing, I was I was playing the character and I was playing it straight, as I've just explained, which was part of the the persona. I'm the seeker who's looking for you know the answer to this mystery. <clears throat> and I got into what I call green room situations because I actually used to make public appearances mm-hmm. with, with a couple of people, again, whose names you would recognize if I said them. Mm-hmm. And I heard some pretty cynical stuff being said about the people that buy their wares. Mm-hmm. I, I won't even call them followers. They're basically, they're, they're, they're customers to yeah, these people. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and they're not looked upon very highly by mm-hmm. some of these people. They think they're idiots. Yeah. They think they're suckers because they are, unfortunately. Like, they're either suckers or they share their this this person's ethics. Either way, it's not a good situation. Yeah. But mostly they're suckers. Um, they're people that are looking for something to believe in. They're looking for, uh, you know, a family because they have no family or they have a dysfunctional family. They're looking for self-esteem. They're looking for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they're very damaged um, – psychologically damaged people mm-hmm. that are looking for relief from their suffering. And unfortunately, a lot of these people offer, uh, you know, relief. They say that they can, they can, I can fix you. Um, I noticed one of the, the, one of the most common terms is I can deprogram you. Mm. And you're starting probably to, to hear echoes of Scientology here. Yeah. And, and boy, do they share a lot of terminology. <laughs> wow. And I'm not saying these people are Scientologists, but a lot of them seem to be former Scientologists, hmm. former in their quotes, or they at least have an admiration for it. Hmm. They don't have a disdain for it. Um, and so they, they share a lot of terminology, which 
is kind of weird, but when you think about it, probably not because, you know, we think of Scientology, you know, for what it is, which is, you know, Hubbard was a huckster. Yeah. He took a bunch of other stuff that already existed, mashed it together and threw it together in a book and called it Dianetics and, you know, and then the rest is history. Mm-hmm. But these people that, that I'm talking about, um, you know, are doing the same thing only in a more modern. So Scientology has become one of the tools that they push into their tool bag mm-hmm. along with other things. So now what you're seeing is this kind of amalgamation of mind control belief, satanic panic belief, conspiracy, um, you know, in the sense of like JFK, uh, you know, like the government's out to get you, MIBs, UFOs. All this stuff is kind of like converged into this new kind of like uber religion. I I can't think of it as anything other than a religion because – the people that follow this stuff and the way they act, they're cultish, mm-hmm. right? And people forget that Christianity used to be a cult. Right. <laughs> it still is, but like, you know, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, doesn't get called a cult anymore because they have enough believers worldwide. Right. But, you know, it started out as like a cult of 12 people wandering around Palestine. Um, and so if that's essentially what you're seeing now is like is the formation of this new kind of conglomerate cult that comes out of all these like little things that used to be happening. They all used to be kind of balkanized. Mm-hmm. And now they're kind of getting like these people that are coming along now are kind of pulling up all this stuff and mashing it together into like this consolidating story. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of, that's what's happening. And, and so what, there have been people that have equated QAnon to a religion. And I don't argue with that. I would say cult. Yeah. Um, but it definitely becoming an established enough uh, cult that I think it probably qualifies almost almost now it would call, qualify as a religion. Uh, so so where I look at, you know, I wander onto these different forums and, you know, mostly takes place through social media and websites now. But, you yeah. know, I, you know, go through like YouTube rabbit holes to look at mm-hmm. some crazy stuff and see the mm-hmm. commenters and then see like, you know, certain people have like, patreons and you know and where i see like a really just kind of like undistinguished mass of craziness you're saying that there are just like anything else i guess there there are people who are treating this you know who are very on purpose as Mm -hmm. creating you know a cult essentially let's call it what it is and, you know, finding followers and spreading their beliefs and, you know, uh-huh. generating revenue some way or... Uh-huh. See, that's scary. Yeah. Are are, are you familiar with a, um, a group called the ISSTD, International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation? Yes. I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was I actually was having a conversation with uh, Lucian Greaves, the you know, co-founder of the Satanic Temple. We were talking mm-hmm. about this stuff yesterday. Okay. And, and um, you know, we were kind of talking about how the ISSTD, it's been kind of like the intellectual, you know, you know, just like we've had all these, like, right-wing groups like the Heritage Foundation that were kind of, mm-hmm. like, keeping, like, the worst, most reactionary thinking from the right-wing kind of on the back burner waiting for the right mm-hmm. cultural moment. The yeah. ISSTD, I feel like, is doing the same thing with the satanic panic stuff. Um, 
and it's just been really interesting how, you know, Pizzagate or QAnon is such, like a rehash of the 80s in a lot of ways. And, um, well, Pizzagate was too, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, Pizzagate ton- had tunnels, allegedly, under Comet Pizza. And uh-huh, uh-huh. McMartin School had tunnels. And uh-huh, the Finders uh-huh. allegedly had tunnels. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, <laughs> You know, and that's how I got into the Finders. Maybe I'm pivoting to ask you about you about the Finders because I found that you know so many times I see that as like that custom service report as being you know that laid out the conspiracy as being kind of like the one tangible thing. You know, we have an actual government document that says right. there's a satanic pedocracy. So it you know it's true and and it just keeps coming back and coming back. Um but obviously if you actually I don't know how much time you spent looking into that stuff but Oh, I spent a lot of time. I I, I actually yeah. tracked down uh Toby Terrell. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Cuz yeah, of the book. Found him. Yeah, cuz the book was the book was not being published. Um he was doing a vanity, what they call a vanity publishing yeah, of it, yeah. you know, self-publishing. And he was selling it off the counter at his Zen center mm-hmm. in Gainesville, Florida. Um, when I found him and uh, he was really nice and he talked to me and I said, look, I'm really interested in the history of your group. I'm not here to smear you guys, you know, and, and I, and I knew, you know, our, our mutual friend who's making the documentary. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if he wants me to say his name, but, um, and, and I said, I know him and, you know, like I'm actually going to be in the documentary speaking favorably about what you guys were doing because I, in a lot of ways, it was an influence for what I was doing mm-hmm. with Hong Sat. You know, like yeah. the, this whole world game thing I was talking about, like basically using the map of the world as you play your your board, your your game board. Yeah, really kind of came from what they were doing, like what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. And they weren't perfect, you know. Like there's there's no group in the '60s that you can find that, that ended up being perfect. No, but there was a lot of them. They were trying to do things, trying to do new things. And so Toby um, sent me a copy of the book, and I read it, and I said, dude this has to be out there. We yeah. need this out there because there's so much disinformation about you guys and what you're mm-hmm. doing. And then a lot of it is like really vicious. Yeah. Um, and he knew, you know, mm-hmm. and I said, how about if I make a, 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 you know, I'll make an ebook out of this and I'll put a while, I'll put some work into getting it, you know, like uh, SEO work on it and I'll get it into the, into the, into the search engines and make sure that we get it out there so that people actually see this if not first, at least alongside yeah. all the other stuff. Right. Um, and that's actually been very successful. Um, I think uh, off the, all the different sites, there's been you know, 20,000 of the books. Distributed. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I put it everywhere. I put it on Google Books. I put it on archive.org. Mm-hmm. You know, I just kind of put it everywhere. And then I did spend the time to like get it on Goodreads and build a profile that would show up in Google when you Googled the name of the book. And, uh-huh. you know, I, I put like a good year's worth of work That's into great. making sure that it showed up really high in the search engine results page. Yeah. You know, um, it's and, and so, you know, it's done, it's done well. Yeah. And that. it's such a good book. And of course, it's a great book. Yeah. It's not going to convince the people that are already ideologically, ideologically convinced of his, you know, being a satanic cult member but um but you know it was was really interesting this morning i was going through the all the tallahassee police reports from you know when they had their arrest Mm -hmm. and and i was kind of going like back and forth between those and actual like news 
clips from that era. Mm-hmm. And it was like, those poor guys, you know, finders never had a chance. It was like, you're reading, you know, Scott Hunt, the Tallahassee uh, police spokesman saying, you know, we definitely have a satanic cult here. You know, this goes from Mexico to to Canada and, you know, and then you're like, you know, and talking about how the kids are given to them and all this stuff. And then you're reading the actual police reports and it says no such thing. Like right. there was such a huge disconnect. It was like, I, you know, obviously some, some satanic panic, uh, you know, like cult cop went through and gave a, I guess, you know, gave a, a speech or a, some sort of program for the Tallahassee police department that got them all whipped up. But see, there's like, there's like all these people like Ted Gunderson type type folks that like you call like, Oh, we need a cult specialist. And you call up this nut job that like shows up and gives you like this, like, I'm going to give you this profile. Like, and it's like, you, you listen to this stuff and you're like, dude, you need to like just pack up and leave. Cause you know, th- these people have no business uh, giving the police any kind of any kind of uh, recommendations whatsoever on any of this because because like you said they're satanic panic believers they've come in they've already they've already made up their mind before they come in there also seems to be this thread of not only was there literally like a, a moral panic happening at the time but you know the the nature of like what the finders were is this kind of like antinomian project that flouted convention like that you know straight-laced people really hate it when you don't follow what they perceive society's rules to be even if you're like harmless they don't consider but they don't consider what you're doing harmless because you are you are threatening the validity of what they consider to be the foundation of civilization right 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 uh i think robert anton wilson pointed out that um you know people psychologically take ideological territory as seriously as they take or as animals take or as people take physical actual territory mm-hmm. yeah confusing the map of the territory <laughs> exactly looking at the finders what is your kind of because this is something i hope to address in whatever i ended up end up doing about the finders um you know what was your kind of evaluation i guess of the of the group in and of itself. You know, there's like, there's this game thing that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. There's definitely like a charismatic figure, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, there's, there's a strong sense of humor there that a lot of people are never going to get. Like you're like, I don't know too many parents who are ever going to like see the humor and getting a, a letter describing their son's genitals to them, (laughs) you know? Right. Right. Um, which not to say that it's the most evil thing in the world, but it's just, you know, it's going to run people the wrong way. Like what's your kind of overall, yeah, just kind of overall picture of like what the finders was. Yeah. The sort of stuff never had an effect on me, obviously, because I just kind of charged through that. And in fact, it it made me having been a victim of that, Mm -hmm. right. Having been accused of all kinds of things Mm -hmm. um, by people that either really thought that or, or, you know, we're just using it as a way to smear me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another thing that happens in that community, by the way. Yeah. Is uh, when they scream Intel, it doesn't always mean they really think you're Intel. Right. They're, they're trying to, they're trying to mark you uh-huh. to the community and it'll, in a way jeopardize uh, your safety. 
because mm. there are people that will believe it. Not not unlike swatting. No, it's exactly like that. It's exactly that's that's the, that's the mentality right there. So um, yeah, the, the, so so I kind of charged through it and got really intrigued. And then after I read Toby's book and talked to Toby, you know, I became really 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 intrigued. And I won't say that everything that Petty did. You know, I thought was great. There was some things where I just went, "Oh, you're kind of an egotistical prick, weren't you?" Um, I mean, but you know, he's, he was human. But what they were doing, nobody had really attempted anything like that up until that point. And there was a lot of people attempting things at that point. Which, if you're coming out of the '50s and you're in the '60s, you're, you're acting out of desperation at that point because you're like, "I, I can't buy this." June, June Ward Cleaver lifestyle that's, that's being sold to me. Like this is this does not look like something that I'm going to enjoy, and um, and so you're you're flailing and you're looking for anything at all, and since you haven't done anything wrong yet, you don't know what's wrong to do. So you have to make some mistakes, you know, and, and to be totally cliche, you have to break some eggs to make some omelets. Um, but you know, they, at least they were trying something, and they were trying something at a time that if they were doing it now, they probably wouldn't even get on the radar, to be honest with you. But back then, they got on the radar. And I do think that um, I think that what they were trying to do at the very core of it was take all their ingrained beliefs that weren't theirs and do things that would allow them to uh, kind of exercise them. So that they could get on to finding out what their actual true desires were, because you can't just start expressing your true desires on day one when you've got all these other things that have been laid on top of you. You have to do you have to do this expulsion, and and that can be cathartic and that can be ugly. These people were living in experiments where they were trying to do that, and they were trying to live communally while they were doing it. That's got to be the hardest thing in the world to do. That's walking a tightrope, you know. Mm-hmm. You're trying to you're trying to live like a community, which means that everybody's relying on everybody else for survival. At the same time, you're trying to uncork this stuff. Like you're trying to uncork yourself so that all this stuff that's been bottled up in the it is pouring out, so that you can get on to the next step, which is like now like finding out what the stuff is you want to put in yourself that you want to make a choice on doing. And so that that ugly part of it, you know, is going to be really hard to maintain responsibility together as a community while you're undergoing that process, which which I think people discovered after a while and realized that you have to have a community of people that starts this thing that kind of already has gotten some of the, the, the legwork out of the way. So then they can be the intake for the new people that come along so that they kind of have a, a womb-like environment, you know, where they're allowed to fall apart and, and, and that the community doesn't suffer when they do. So that was Joseph Matheny, and uh, we cover a lot of ground there. Uh, started with QAnon and alternate reality games, and how this movement might be, this mass, massive QAnon movement might just be, uh, you know, somebody's insane trolling event, psychopathic trolling on a political scale. And from there got into the finders, from the point of view of a games theorist and some of the meta programming and kind of psychological aspects of gameplay and 
hopefully gave you some perspective into what the finders were all about. I think that's it for this episode of Failed State Update. Thanks for listening. And uh, you can contact me through my webpage, LennyFlatley.net. There you can find my books, including books about conspiracy theories and all kinds of good stuff. Thanks again for listening. Come in, London. Come in, London Control. Oh, you're going to shoot your mouth off, man.